the National Archives podcast series. Going, going, almost gone. The vanishing face of the traditional English pub. Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming tonight. It's nice to see such a good number here. Now, what I'm going to be talking about primarily tonight is the interior of the English pub. I mean, that's the bit that matters. That's the bit where we go and drink, where we hopefully go and have a good time. And I'm sure it doesn't need me to tell you that the English pub, the interior of the English pub, has changed enormously in the last few decades. The pivotal sort of time, I suppose, is round about the 1960s. Because before that, uh, the pub was usually divided up into different rooms, which had different status, um, they had different names. But now the pub is a very much uh, an opened-out, single-space establishment. Not all, of course, but many are. And really, there are very, very few pubs that we have left today which look much as they would have done half a century or more ago. And this loss of uh, pub interiors, this hugely important building type in our cultural history, was a matter of great concern to the Campaign for Real Ale and to English heritage. And so it came about that I was appointed, I was very fortunate, it's one of these sort of dream jobs, I was appointed uh, for two years to work for English Heritage and the Campaign for Real Ale, looking at interiors that had been identified by the campaign, by the Campaign for Real Ale, of pubs that had not altered too much because they were becoming incredibly rare. Canva started the search in the early 1990s and thought that, well, maybe out of our pub stock of, what, 60,000? There might be 500 that they felt were of real national, I mean the UK, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. Perhaps 500 out of that 60,000 would be buildings that had genuinely old, um, fairly complete uh, pub interiors. The figure that we've come up with now is around about 250. That's all. Interiors which we feel are of national significance. So, I, so it was that uh, I spent my time for a couple of years at this delightful job uh, traipsing around uh, historic pubs throughout the UK. And what I'm going to show you tonight uh, on the screen is a series of pubs which show in various ways the traditional, which has of course many meanings, as many faces of it, but the traditional English pub as it existed uh, half a century or more ago. So um, I was quite thrilled. I've been doing this job for what? Uh, two or three months. Now I was sort of getting the hang of what uh, historic pubs were all about. They had these separate rooms. Um, they were built at various times. The Victorian ones had lots of glitz and glitter and so on. And as I was travelling through a village in uh, Treasure one day, I saw this sign. It says, how a pub used to be. Big sign outside the pub. You know, fantastic. Can you just imagine my enthusiasm? Well, i better get in there quick. So, I pulled up onto the large Victorian car park, sped past the traditional uh, kiddies' playground that you see here on the, on the screen, and found myself inside. Now, that is a pub as it used to be, or as it is interpreted in, uh, southern Ch in northern Cheshire, uh, as it was in 2001. And what we've got is traditional pub furnishings. I mean, I didn't know when I saw this, or hitherto I didn't know, the Arga cooker, which we see there in, on the screen, was a traditional pub fitting. Perhaps you didn't either. Any more than the mangle was parked in the, uh, on the side. And I do have to confess that to this day, I still don't understand what the purpose of a tin bath is in a, a pub. What, what I'm showing you there is a pub that, in fact, it's ma manufactured heritage. It's a reinvention of sort of something or other. Uh, it's a perfectly decent pub, multi-room pub, gutted in 1999, and all these sort of bits and pieces um, inserted. So this is the sort of thing, one of the things that has happened to our traditional pubs. Pubs have become themed, in this case, as a kitchen, somebody's kitchen. 
Anyway, enough of that. Um, what I'm going to show you now, take you through a range of pubs, starting from some of the simplest, most basic pubs that we have left in this country, ranging through to some of the most glorious examples that we have from the golden age of pub building round about 1900. Now, pubs have been with us an awful long time. They are most certainly uh, around in medieval times, and here on the screen I'm showing you an illustration from a manuscript in the British Museum uh, dating from the early 14th century of a tiny little uh, cottage, an alewife outside who's giving a drink to this... Uh, he's actually a hermit who's obviously taken the day off from, being, from doing what hermits do. And he's drinking his ale outside the alehouse. And we know it's an alehouse because it's got an ale stake put outside. This is a, a kind of besom, a kind of broom that was put outside um, uh, premises to show that ale was on sale. That's for 1340. This pub that I'm going to show you now, you can go to today. And it's probably the most basic uh, pub that we have left in this country. It's the Cider House at Defford. It's on the A4104, um, just outside Pershaw. It's a cider house. It doesn't sell beer. It sells cider. And it's a half-timbered, thatched cottage. And the bar is a tiny little hatch which leads onto the garden. In fact, the garden in front of the building is the main bar. People sit there, they drink, drink their cider. What if it's wet? Well, they go into the old bakehouse here on the left. You can get about ten people in there and then it's crowded. This is a simple, tiny, little rural drinking house that would have existed by the tens of thousands in times past. They are now, they are now virtually all gone. Now, I mentioned that uh, the building here on the left is the old bakehouse because this pub, we think, started around about 1850 when the, when the then landlord, come baker, took it over. This is a case of a pub where uh, people combined innkeeping, pub keeping with another activity. You go into a Weatherspoons today or a pitcher and piano or somewhere like that, this is large, a large establishment, big business, big turnover, specialised drink, food. In the past, it wasn't always like that. People combined pub keeping with other activities, baking in this case, Carting, blacksmithing, wheelwriting, all sorts of different activities, and farming. That now is almost uh, at an end. This particular pub that I'm showing you now is the Cupid's Hill Tavern at Grossmont in Monmouthshire. You can't go there anymore, but when I went there, uh, Mr. Godden, whose name is above the door, he combined pub keeping with, in fact, coffin making. Well, somebody's got to do it. So it's a pint for the living and a coffin for the dead. And that's inside. A very basic uh, establishment. Uh, rather 1970s wallpaper on the walls. Uh, no, I'm not suggesting one moment that this is a, an architectural gem, but I certainly would suggest it's a, culturally it's a, it's a gem, or was, because we have so few left like this now. Tiny little basically furnished room in the country. Another pub which, uh, sorry, another activity, of course, was brewing. There's a, obviously, there's a hugely long history of uh, pubs brewing on the premises. But again, this is something that, well, by the 1970s, only four pubs were doing it, and you're seeing one of them there. That's the Blue Anchor at Helston in Cornwall. There were only four in the 1970s. And only this one has actually had a continuous history since then of brewing on the premises. So that is something really very, very special, very, very rare. Many pubs now, of course, with the Real Ale Revival, are, uh, well, many more pubs are mm. brewing on the premises, home-brewed ales for, uh, for discriminating tastes. Service in pubs. We're all used to the idea of a bar counter. That's the, tradition, that's the standard way of doing things. You go up to the counter, you say, tell them what you want, give your money, go away and sit down. It hasn't always been like that. In fact, before perhaps the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century, 
most pubs would probably not have had a bar counter. And here we're seeing at the bridge in, in Topsham, just outside Exeter, drinkies brought up from the cellar by hand and served at a small hatch, not a bar counter. A wonderful pub this is. Or another example of old arrangements. This is where you get your beer at the cock in, sorry, the cock at Broom in Bedfordshire. The landlord works in the cellar, draws the, the beer direct from the, uh, the casks here at the back and serves them at this little drop-down hatch here. No bar counter. Very, very rare. We think there's probably only about a dozen such establishments, maybe perhaps a dozen and a half establishments like this left in the country. They just don't do it like this these days. Another thing that is quite rare now, but would have been more common in the past, is stillaging, that is to say, storing the barrels, sorry, storing the casks uh, at the back of the bar. This is uh, an inn in uh, Criselli in South Wales, Pembrokeshire. Um, here they are, there's the, a series of casks. Um, the landlord, cheerful looking landlady is drawing beer off from one of them, and in this case serving it at a counter. So you have at least got the sophistication here of a counter, but that sort of scene you certainly will find nowhere in London that serves uh, beer from, from cast behind the bar. Finished, over, done with. Don't see it anymore. And another, th another example of a barless, uh, barless pub is the Red Lion at Ampney St Peter in Gloucestershire. And here it, it's a tiny little pub and you get about ten customers in. It's, it's full. And the landlord sits on the stool at the back with a couple of hand pumps and that's where you get your beer served from. You just don't, you will not find anybody in London looking like that anymore, quite clearly. So these are, the, uh, these are some examples of how service in traditional ways, in old-fashioned ways, still lingers on in a few pubs. Now, moving up the uh, scale of grandeur here, uh, this is uh, an urban pub in Bloxwich in the West Midlands, the Turf Tavern, which is one of the well, it's one of the classics that uh, Canmer discovered um, in the early in the 1990s. It's a mid-terrace pub, got a central entrance and got bars on either side. The public bar on the right, which is what we're going to enter, and the uh, the lounge on on the left. So we're going to go in to a spick and span pub which has not changed in a hundred years, I guess. Certainly not since before the Second World War. Quarry tile floor, these simple bar fittings, all very elegant, slatted seating at the back, simple uh, shelving at the back for, gla for glasses and bottles and so on. And you can see at the back there on the screen two hatches, two sliding hatches that go up and down vertically and what are those all about? Well, let's go and have a look. Here's the other side of them. And so the people who are in the lounge bar, on the left-hand side of the pub, they can go to these hatches and order drink. But they've got another function. And those of us who, like me now, who are using their bus passes, will probably remember a thing called the off-sales, off-licenses in pubs. How many of us today go down to the pub to buy alcohol of any sort and take it home? We go to Sainsbury's or Waitrose or Asda or, if you live in the southeast of England, perhaps Calais to get your drink. You don't go down the pub or, or, set, or send the nipper down to the pub to, to get drink. The off-sales and the off-sales counter like this is very much a thing of the past. And that is one of the changes, one of the many changes that has come over the pub since the 1960s. In 1962, the legislation was liberalised for supermarkets to sell alcohol, and that spelled the death knell of the uh, off-sales in the pub. And another feature of the traditional pub is another feature of the traditional pub is compartmentalisation. When I started my underage drinking in Birmingham in the in the early 1960s, uh, you, you could go into the public bar where the beer was one price, or if you were feeling a bit flush, you could go into the, the lounge, or saloon it might have been called, where you paid tops a pint more. 
Pubs traditionally were, as I said to you earlier on, they were divided up into different rooms, into different spaces. And that is one of the great things that has again changed since the 1960s. Here you have a rather rare surviving screen at the Nova Scotia pub in Bristol Docks. Very ordinary, nothing special. It's not great architecture, it's not great woodwork. But it just shows how a simple public bar was divided into two by a screen. On the far side of it, it's a small area which was a, it's kind of snug. Um, it's called a pri it was a private bar, so called. So it had a slight sort of sense of um, specialness for the people who used it. Uh, compared to the public bar, uh, on where I'm standing, taking the photograph, uh, an open space, somewhat larger, and where the beer was cheapest and the facilities most basic. And now, uh, I only know one pub in this country where you can go into uh, the, the, the... Sorry. There's only one pub I know in this country where you can go in on the posh side and pay more for beer than in the public bar. And that's the Cricketers in Woodford Green, uh, on the north side of London. You pay fourpence a pint more. That's the only one I know. But 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that was the norm. The lounge, the saloon were a bit posher, a bit more opulently furnished, and you paid more for your beer in consequence. In London especially, uh, pubs were divided up into very, very small compartments. The fashion was very, very tiny drinking areas. I'm showing you now a pub in a historic photograph, probably from the 1940s, of a pub in the East End. Um, and there are, in fact, about three screens that uh, divide it up. Not a big space, but it's divided up into three or four drinking compartments. And that's the way people like to do it. Very, very rare today. But you can still see evidence um, of this because you'll know from so many pubs that it, they have multiple doors outside. I'm showing you now the chuff in the middle of Salisbury and there's one door, two doors, uh, and I think, there's, I think there's another one from a carriage entrance there. Different doors will lead into different spaces. If you're building a pub today, you just have one central door, I guess, to lead into one space, probably. But in the past, different doors, different spaces. And at this particular example, you can see how the wall has been taken away at the back. That wall used to continue over. And another entrance, sorry, another. Sorry. You can see how this wall has uh, been taken away here, and another piece of walling taken away there, and now everybody can circulate round in one single space. In the past, they'd have been in separate rooms. Now, I say in London, the situation was extreme. And if we look at old pub plans, as I have on the screen now, on the left, I've got a pub which has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten separate bars. There's a server in the middle, so the staff can circulate round and serve people in these different little drinking boxes. But people did love in London to drink in tiny little areas. The other, the other plan on the screen has one, two, three, four drinking areas plus a huge billiards room at the back. That billiards room must be taking up something like 40% of the total trading area. I'll come back to billiards later because the billiards and pubs are have, uh, they are important. Now, can you find tiny little drinking boxes like that today? Well, I know of one example, and this is the pub where it where they occur. This is the Barley Mow in Dorset Street in uh, in the West End, W1, and you can see there one, two and behind a white van that's sort of inconveniently parked in front of it, a third door, take my word for it. One, two, three, three doors. <laughs> Certainly going into three spaces. Much has been removed from this pub, but attached to the bar are what appear to be 
They looked like Georgian box pews that you might find in a church. Very high and very small. There are two of them. And each of them, you can probably get about five people in, and then they are just stuffed. They are full. And that's the way people like, seem to like to drink in London a hundred years ago. This is a very, very precious survival indeed, a very, very rare thing. Another pub where you can find such compartmentalisation in London is quite remarkably bang in the heart of uh, shopping land, right by... Oxford's, Oxford tube, uh, sorry. right by Oxford Circus tube station, the Argyle Arms. There's the tube station next door to it. The Argyle Arms in Argyle Street. It's got one, two doors, so they're obviously leading into separate spaces. And we're going to go in the left-hand one, and we are looking down a long corridor, which has got compartments leading off it on the right, separated from the corridor, separating the passage of people by timber and glass screens. On the left, there's a range of mirrors to give a sense of opulence and glitziness. And these drinking boxes, well, they're not really drinking boxes, but they're sort of small com compartmental, compartmentalised areas <coughs> leading off the corridor, all surrounded by this lovely glass and, um, and, and, and timber work. And we heard a very, very far cry from those basic rural uh, establishments I showed you um, early on in this talk. This is pub building at its finest. Another pub which is truly remarkable for its compartmentalization is the Prince Alfred in Maida Vale, right by Warwick uh, Avenue tube station in London. And here there's a promontory bar sticking out from the back wall and surrounding it there's a series of screens. One, two, three, and there's another one beyond. Multiple screens dividing the space up into five drinking areas. Very small and it's these, the only pub with an arrangement like this surviving. You can find plenty of promontory bars sticking out into London pubs. They would have been surrounded by screen work like this. This is the only one where it survives this complete here. And you can see in the screen work, very low doors. He's only about four foot high. Now, you may think, okay, people were shorter in the past, but 100 years ago, I don't think they were just four foot high. The purpose of these screens, sorry, these doors, is for, uh, to enable service staff to move from one compartment to the other. Each of the compartments in the pub, each of the drinking compartments in the pub, has its own external door. But, sta uh, but staff, pot boys, cleaners and so on, don't want to have to go outside. They want to uh, do their work by progressing from one compartment to another, which they do in these, in these, through these low doors. At this pub, there's also another extremely rare feature, uh, which many of you will know by name, called the snob screens. The snob screens uh, were to be found in late Victorian pubs in the better, better quality uh, rooms, the better quality drinking spaces. And there's a little, a little, little uh, snob screens are little uh, swiveling uh, glass and timber uh, features they uh, provide some sort of uh, privacy between uh, the better class of customer in these areas and, and, the, drinking staff, and, the, and the serving staff. Um, if they're closed, then uh, the staff can't see the, the clients, and there is supposedly a, a, a greater sense of privacy. Now, stop screens occur when we were, when we were researching uh, this pub's project, we reckon that they probably only occur in situ now in about six pubs. They're a well-known feature. Many of you will know of them. But these little screens that provided uh, privacy for, for clients are now incredibly rare. Funnily enough, there's probably more uh, fake ones that have been put in to create mock Victorian heritage than there are by way the, than the real thing. You know, that is the irony that we have with pub furnishing today. Uh, Victorian fittings are taken out and 
huge amounts of money are spent in putting false ones back in. Um, another feature um, in pubs, traditional feature in pubs, and that now takes us to the north. And this pub is the Swan with Two Necks in the middle of Stockport. It's actually a 19, about a 1930 interior, but it shows an interesting and very different kind of planning from what you find in London, because there are most certainly regional variations. In this case, you come in the front door, and then you can turn... Um, turn left into a, into a bar but carry on and the corridor opens out before you into a drinking lobby what's called a drinking lobby which is particularly uh, well suited to vertical drinking which uh, a lot of people like to do I don't personally but uh, a lot of folk do and then beyond there's another, another room uh, a better class room a lounge um, for people who wish, wish to sit down that's quite a different plan from what was the norm in London. Another thing that has changed in, in uh, the last 40 years, this, this notice is, a, I think, a, a rather wistful notice. It says, gents only until 1975. In fact, the date is the 1st of January 1976 when sex, the Sex Discrimination Act uh, may outlawed the fact that uh, 1st of January 1976, when the Sex Discrimination Act uh, outlawed the use of uh, pub rooms solely by men. This is in Shrewsbury at the Loggerheads, where quite evidently some gentlemen felt this was a, a turn for the worse. But again, a major change that's, that's, take, uh, that's taken place uh, in pubs. Just a little word about uh, traditional pub fittings and uh, a little look at some of the finest pub fittings that we have left in this country. Uh, about 1900 was the golden age of pub fitting. Huge amounts of money were being spent on pubs for a variety of reasons, one of which was that the pub, as never before, was facing competition from other things. We hear about this so much today. But around about 1900 compared to, let's say, the middle of the 19th century, the pub was up against all sorts of other attractions. Music hall, clubs, football, sports of all conceivable kinds, excursions, holidays were coming in, shortly we are going to have the, the cinema, and so on and so forth. The pub had to make itself a special, attractive, attractive place. Furthermore, uh, brewers, particularly in London, were busy buying up property um, they wanted to tie pubs uh, to the supply of their beer. And they were in enormous competition with one another. And this led them to uh, endeavour to make their pubs better than their competitors, desirable places where people would go and drink their beer. This pub I show you on the screen is a real classic. It's the Red Lion in Duke of York Street in St. James's, in the heart of London. And it's lined with mirrors, which are... Uh, etched and cut. There's lovely woodwork there. The mirrors make the place look a jolly sight bigger than it really is because it is a tiny pub. And yet, even so, this particular pub is split up into different uh, drinking areas. We, I'm in the back bar, and beyond, we have um, a front area, which in turn, once upon a time, has been split up into three bits. But this is, this is uh, the height of pub furnishing around about 1900. Princess Louise in Hoban, a wonderful pub in terms of tile work, rich glass, and, and woodwork. And I show you here um, one of the one of the, um, the gilded and etched mirrors uh, on the wall, painted uh, back painted mirrors. In this case, at the Half Moon in Herne Hill in southeast London, which um, is one of a series showing birds doing the sort of things that birds do. In this case, catching a fish. Um, and again, it's all part of the business of, of making the pub look opulent, look, look special, to make it something different, different from people's home surroundings. Tiles. In this case, I'm showing you the uh, stalk in Birkenhead, um, Christ Street, Birkenhead, which was re remodelled about 1905, uh, hence the blue tile work that surrounds the uh, main entrance. 
you go in and you find there's this mosaic on the floor, there's um, tiles uh, lying in the corridor. It's a rich, opulent sort of place. Back to plans, uh, an opulent uh, pub here with a different plan from what I've been showing you otherwise. This is um, in Liverpool. Um, it's a street corner pub, and you can go in this door, and there's another one on the side there, and you can actually walk round, round a right angle, and back again. And this is what you find inside. You come in this door, round a right angle, and this place is full of tiles, mosaic, uh, etched glass, mahogany. It's a real riot of turn of, uh, turn of the 19th century opulent decoration, probably about 19, 1905, something like that. And the reason for this sort of plan, it is said by many people, and perhaps some truth in it, that it was a requirement of Liverpool police, who always, police have always taken a huge interest in, in pubs, um, whereby the police could enter one uh, through one door and they could exit through another, just walk through, see what was going on. And that is the explanation apparently, for the L-shaped plan of many a Liverpool pub. In the corner of the street, uh, you have the public bar, the corridor surrounds it, and the little rooms going off it, um, lounges, snugs, and other rooms which in the north take different names, like a newsroom where you can go and have a quiet read, or a commercial room, again a northern term, where commercial travellers could, could go and, and meet and perhaps do, transact business. That's another view that I'm showing you of the lion. You can see to, to good effect this L-shaped plan and the rich furnishings, furnishings there. On the other side of the Pennines, the Garden Gate is one of our finest uh, pubs that we have left from the Edwardian era. Uh, the frontage is fully covered with terracotta and tile work in two colours. Fantastic survival from 1904. And that is the public bar, which is quite a thing. It's got a ceramic bar counter, one of only, we think, 14 in the country, mosaic floor, and, all, and a cheery bunch of locals all lined up drinking their beer. Wonderful survival. You wouldn't build it like that today, would you? I don't think so. So it's building to last. Another uh, tile counter I show you there. This is at the former St. Anne's Hotel in Lytham St. Anne's in Lancashire. Vastly long uh, counter, covered in, in tile work, the floor covered in tiles, the walls covered in tiles. This is building to last. This is building uh, for a long time, unlike modern pub furnishing, which uh, is usually done for five years if you're lucky. It's a very, very different way of doing things. And this pub here in Birmingham, now I'm afraid sadly derelict because it's been abandoned and vandalised, doesn't look much from the outside, the Belfield in Winston Green. Ordinary sort of building of about 1870, I suppose. But you go inside and there's a tremendous collection of tile work from floor to ceiling. Floor to ceiling tile work and framed pictures, you know, popular views, uh, popular pictures of the day. And something we haven't met yet, and another of the great changes that has come over the pub in the last uh, half century, a little white dot there at the back of a bench, it's a bell push. When I, as I said, when I started my underage drinking, it was in Birmingham in the early 1960s, then I went to University of Manchester, and I was amazed to find in the better rooms of pubs there waiters coming round serving drinks and, and until 50 years ago it was very common for there to be waiter service in pubs in the better rooms you'd pay uh, a copper or two more for the beer and, and you expected to, to tip a few coppers to, to the waiter but that is something now that is virtually extinct in pubs it occurs occasionally I think there's a continuous tradition at a couple of pubs in Liverpool and a few modern pubs do it which is a nice, a nice feature but it's very rare, very unusual. 
And in so many pubs, in better classrooms, you can still see vestiges of this in terms of, 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 of bell pushes. But it's a regional thing, I think. This slide I show you now is uh, from the Forester in Ealing, and it shows a bell push, and above it, it actually says bell. Because I suspect that people were so unused to the idea of having bell pushes for table service in London, they actually had to tell people what this thing was for. Um, it's the only pub I know with an old bell push um, in London. And it seems to be a Midlands and North tradition. Why this should be, I do not think I can explain. But it certainly is a fact that physical evidence is just not here in London. Londoners obviously were um, quite capable of getting up and ordering their own drinks. Now, to probably the finest pub, the most opulent pub we have on the mainland of um, uh, the UK, this is the Philharmonic in Liverpool, which may be known to some of you. It's a strange sort of architectural confection outside, but inside, it, uh, inside, well, uh, sorry. It's a strange architectural uh, confection outside, um, but the, the gates on Hope Street are a fantastic Art Nouveau um, uh, piece of work, enormously elaborate. Nothing like it, I don't think, in any other uh, wood, uh, ironwork of this date in this country. It's an amazing piece, but leading in to an interior of extraordinary, op extraordinary opulence. Mosaic floors, mahogany seats, panelling, some brass work here, stained glass. Extraordinarily rich um, piece of work, 1898 to 1901. And I'm showing you now a very large room at the uh, Philharmonic. It's, um, it is, in fact, a billiard room. And uh, on an earlier slide, I showed you an, an example of a billiard room which took up about 40% of the trading area of a fairly small pub. In this case, this vast great palace of a pub in the middle of Liverpool has a billiard room which occupies a huge amount of the trading area, again, probably about 40%. Billiards were very, very popular and evidently a good source of income for publicans 100 years ago. Here on the screen is an example of the Crown in St. John's Wood, uh, Northwest 8. A huge room with two billiard tables, just two, and seating for people to, to watch the play and obviously, no doubt, uh, drink the beer. Uh, very, very popular indeed. Very, uh, often had a big effect upon pub planning. But back to the Liverpool and the Philharmonic and what must be the finest pub loos in this country. Absolutely magnificent. These are the gents. Ladies can go and have a look at them, provided they're not being used for their primary purpose. And as you can see, sort of, it, it's in fact false marble work, but it, it looks like Italian marble. There is um, tiling on the walls and mosaic in the decoration. But perhaps the, the crown, and I'm sorry that's a pun because this is, this is the crown bar in Belfast, which may be known to some of you. The crown bar survived the troubles, all the bombings that took place uh, in the area. It was refitted in the 1890s and has the most stunning interior. And I'd just like to use it to introduce a short section on Northern Ireland um, because that points up how different pubs can be in different parts of the country. Going to the Crown, and you have a long bar counter, same design as the one I showed you at the St Anne's Hotel a little while back, and the most astonishing range of woodwork, tilework, ornamental ceiling. Uh, a fantastic array of, of work but a type of planning which is really unique to Northern Ireland, that you have a, a long bar counter, then in front of it, uh, a wide space for vertical drinking, for stand-up drinking, and then a row of snugs, a row of boxes along one side with doors and, of course, the inevitable bell pushes whereby you could uh, order drink which would be brought to you. There's one of the boxes very intimate and no doubt of course you would pay a little bit more for your drink in one of these uh, exclusive um, uh, settings 
And high up in the bar, you have uh, a bell box. It's lettered from A through to J, and each of those corresponds to one of the little boxes that you just saw, little drinking boxes. You press a buzzer, a bell rings, and uh, a disc moves to and fro so that staff can see which of the drinking boxes require service. If it's B, then the B disc uh, rattles to and fro to show that's where drink is required. Another feature of Northern Ireland, and in fact Scotland too, is that pubs, bars as they're so often known, do not really look anything like English pubs. English pubs, for the most part, are recognisable as pubs. They tend to be quite big, multi-storey, uh, often freestanding. But in Northern Ireland, here at Carragher's Bar, in a place called Camloch in County Antrim, it, this building, this, this facade, it could be anything. It could be a butcher's, grocer's, milliner's, anything you like, really. It's just an ordinary shop front, uh, quite unlike uh, the way English pubs tend to be treated. And inside, it's a tiny little miniature version of the Great Crown in Belfast that I showed you a moment ago. It's got a bar counter down one side, um, a, uh, a mosaic area in the middle, and a row of drinking boxes down the side. Same sort of thing. Very popular in Northern Ireland. A few of them left, not many, but this, this is certainly one of the best. Something you, you just don't tend to get in, in England. And there, there, there are the drinking boxes again. Really quite extraordinary. Another feature of Northern Ireland and indeed Scottish pubs, which have a, a, a much stronger um, spirits drinking and fortified wine drinking tradition than we do in England, um, barrels in the, uh, the bar back, in the fitting at the back of the, um, of the servery. Uh, from these, uh, whiskey, rum, gin would have been drawn off uh, for customers. You do not tend to get that sort of thing uh, in, in England these sort of built-in built in barrels. Another rare feature that we have in, in just uh, three or four pubs in this country uh, from the days um, when people didn't have optics for, uh, for their gin and their whiskey and so on, spirit cocks, spirit taps. And here's a bank of them at, uh, in Stockport, uh, the Queen's Head in Stockport, uh, which are attached, uh, would have been over, sorry, which would have been attached to overhead uh, barrels in, in the room above, and you know, drink would have been poured, gin, whiskey, whatever, into into customers' glasses. But again, you see the optic. That's the way it's done today. <coughs> again, a change that's come over the pub. I don't know exactly when they came in, but I suspect probably uh, into war. I'm liable to correction on that. And to show how different things are across the water, the idea of the spirit grocer. This is um, just across the um, Irish Republic border. Um, it's a pub come grocers. It's really more of a touristy thing now, but in the past, Irish pubs, southern Irish pubs, had dual function of serving a grocer's and uh, as a drink establishment. That was outlawed in the north in 1922 after partition, but continued in the south. The reason it was outlawed, because the authorities considered the idea that ladies going in for their shopping and then popping to the back for, for a quick one wasn't really respectable. Because the whole idea of respectability, of temperance, and as the exhibition at the National Archives shows, temperance is incredibly important in shaping the pub. There's pressure to make it respectable. If you can't close it down, make it respectable. And that is really just the theme I want to end on, looking at uh, pubs in the 20th century. In this case, a very famous pub called the Red Lion in King's Heath in Birmingham, which was uh, modelled well, very loosely on the Angel and Royal in Grantham. Uh, but it is a fine piece of architecture. 16th century, it's refined, it's restrained, and it's meant for civilised drinking. This was an estate which was laid out 
uh, by someone who wanted the job done properly. He wanted it. He wanted respectable drinking. And this reflects itself in many a pub, especially in the interwar period. This is a plan, a ground plan of the pheasant and its surrounding area. The pheasant, sorry. This is a ground plan of the pheasant in Wensfield and its surrounding area. It's a big pub, when I look at it on this plan, but it's surrounded by lawns, a bowling green, rose gardens, two of them, a lily pond, and even the children's playground. Because the idea was this movement to make drinking respectable, making it a decent thing, was to make it something that the whole family could go to. There's no shame in going to the pub. If it's a decent pub, you can take the wife, you can take the kids, you can put them out on the playground perhaps, but um, everybody can go to the pub. And that was one of the dominant themes of interwar pub building. Estate pubs, as I'm sure many of you will know, you'll have seen, they tended to be big, they serve a huge area, tried to provide a wide range of facilities, which uh, intended to attract a large, um, large, uh, uh, sorry, which were intended to attract a large, um, cat which were intended to serve a wide catchment area. And this is one such pub, the Margaret Catchpole in Ipswich, probably for architectural quality and completeness, the best example that we have of an interwar estate pub in this country. It's got four rooms, the off-sales area is still intact, it's got a bowling green out the back, and it is designed for this whole idea of responsible, sensible drinking. And there's the rear of it, there's the bowling green, still very much in use. The provision of sports, in this case it's a Birmingham pub, um, Skittles. You know, there should be more to going to the pub than just, uh, than just drinking alcohol. You go there for... Uh, social uh, social purposes to meet your friends uh, have a good time and in Birmingham they really went to town with these great pubs this is one of the most Im most important and, and well known the Black Horse in Northfield a huge establishment vast great half timbered affair modelled on the idea of uh, late medieval 16th century uh, halls to the great Tudor houses for Again, respectable drinking. There's a bowling green, there's meeting rooms, club rooms. There's something for everybody. Everybody can go there. You can, you can eat, there's a restaurant and so on. And one of the rooms at the back, it is indeed just like um, a kind of medieval, late medieval or Tudor hall. The idea of good Queen Bess, Merry England, that's the idea that's being communicated, the olden time. Art Deco, this is the ship in Skegness. Uh, it's got a flat roof and you can go and take your beer and um, get a bit of sunshine up there and have a drink. Um, a streamlined kind of architecture, the architecture of Art Deco in the 1930s. Inside an Art Deco pub, this is the Vale in uh, Nottingham, Arnold in Nottingham, which has got... Art Deco screen work, doorway, this sort of sleek uh, panelling, and a lounge which you know you could almost imagine was on a, on a great ocean liner of the 1930s. It's that kind of world, the world of respectable drinking. That's what uh, they were aiming to achieve. And my final pub is the Dr. Johnson, which was uh, a remarkable discovery only about five years ago. Uh, we were led to this by um, someone who'd been in there, who's working for the Buildings of England series and, and working on East London, and he thought this was rather special. And indeed it is. It's a great estate pub, virtually intact from the day it was built in 1937. <coughs> Here's a plan of it. On a corner side, a rounded, a rounded corner, it's got a public bar, where, as we know, drink was a bit cheaper and the facilities more basic, a huge lounge at the back, a saloon bar, and there was a, a garden out the back where the kids could go. And on the corner, a private bar, somewhere a little bit more select, where no doubt um, slight, slightly better off regulars would have gone. 
And there's a separate off-sales. Of course there's an off-sales. It has to serve a large area. People want to get drink, and they, and they can't get it at Sainsbury's yet, not in 1937. <coughs> there's the public bar. Fairly basic stuff. And then we have the private bar, uh, slightly better appointed, more refined, more intimate. So that really concludes my survey of pubs. I hope I've shown you some things that are interesting, perhaps bring back a few memories and a little nostalgia. Um, but do beware of false heritage. Do beware of what people tell you about what, what, what is really old. This is a notice I found in Canterbury. It's designed, obviously, for our visitors from across the, uh, the channel. And it says, as you can read full well, the Thomas Ingleby, un pub traditionnel anglais. And, so you know what you're getting inside, une vaste gamme de vrai ale. A great range of real ales. <laughs> you know, this is a Weatherspoon. It was opened about uh, 1998. Is it, how traditional is this? Not traditional in the sort of sense I'm talking about, but the pub does live on. It changes. The pub has changed uh, countless times over the centuries. Um, pubs are closing in large numbers, yet it does survive, it does continue. And although many people predict doom and despondency for the pub, the traditional pub, in some form or other, perhaps a new form, is evolving, will evolve, and will continue to be with us. And I hope that uh, you will all enjoy your visits to our pubs. All I'd ask you to do now is to leave in a respectable fashion. <laughs> okay. This event was recorded live on December the 5th, 2006 at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Jeff Brandwood, architectural historian and chairman of the Victorian Society. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.